Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. Well, good morning. My name is Steve. I also serve as a pastor here, and it's my privilege this morning uh, to open up John uh, chapter 4 with you. So I invite you to take out your Uh, Pew Bibles and turn to page 1,651, where we are going to look at the story of the woman in the well. Uh, We have been looking at the Gospel of John for a few weeks now here at Living Hope through our series, That You May Believe, where we are looking at what it means to be the one who believes in Jesus. And We started with the downward arrows that pointed towards our need for God to come down to us, and now we're in the section of the story that we're representing with this sideways arrows, this movement of Christ. What does it mean for people to encounter Jesus? The the last story that we just looked at was the story of Nicodemus. This was a story of Jesus kind of clashing with the religious elite, and Jesus at one point says... You are the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand that the the religious elite, these these people that should be getting it, aren't getting it, and now this very, or close to the very next story that we are looking at, it's going to be this woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, a person who is the least likely in the minds of the readers to be someone that gets it, that understands, and yet this is whom This is the person whom Jesus um, interacts with and who sees who he is, who turns in belief. As we open God's word together, let's come before him in prayer. Dear Lord, to whom else can we go? You have the words of everlasting life. Speak to us through your spirit who first inspired these words of scripture. Amen. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was in fact not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground where Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired. As he went from his journey, he sat down at the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, 
who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't have to get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw the water. He told her, Go back to your husband, or go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when I lived in Vancouver, I played quite a bit of beach volleyball. And because we couldn't rent out the beach for many days in a row, uh, we would have to do our tournaments all in one day. That meant a lot of games, and on particularly warm days, by the end of it, we'd finish with one goal in mind, to rehydrate. It wasn't just water that we were going with. We were using Gatorade and Powerade. People had their favorite kind of Kool-Aid-like powders that were guaranteed to help you take in the water faster. Uh, my favorite secret trick that someone had was actually taking um, some coconut water. They had their cans, and they would sprinkle some salt in there, and they said that was guaranteed. You wouldn't cramp up. Um, my own system involved having a little tablet that you would drop in the water, and it would start fizzing and bubbling. I figured if it's, if it's moving around, it's got to be doing something. It's got to work. Uh, but no matter what we did, we always finished the day thirsty. There was no escaping this thirst, because when we go thirsty long enough, our bodies start sending us signals. We cramp up. We lose energy. It gets hard to, to move, to do the things that we wanted to do. By the end of the day, the, the trips back to the water fountain there would seem fleeting. We'd just go and refill bottle after bottle. 
In the same way, the woman at the well knows this kind of physical thirst. She knows coming to the well over and over again. You can hear it in her voice when she says, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty, so I won't have to keep coming here to draw the water. Jar after jar, she is stuck with a bunch of temporary fixes, tired of always being thirsty. Of course, her thirst is not just for water. It's pretty transparent here in the text. Thirst represents something deeper in John. You'll find that in John, Jesus turns to our most fundamental urges, our most primal needs and feelings, thirst and hunger, to talk about our need to, for God. And more than that, in this passage, our need for true worship. That's a word that comes up or a phrase that comes up in verse 23 of our passage. There is something similar to our bodily thirst and our thirst for true worship. This is because we are worshiping creatures. That's how we are created. That's how we are designed. When we are disconnected from God, we respond like a bunch of volleyball players on a sunny Saturday, making any concoction to try stop ourselves from cramping up, giving ourselves about anything just to satiate our thirst, if only for a minute. The thing about us, we are worshiping people. We cannot not worship. That's just what we do. Kind of dogs bark, ducks quack, trees tree, people worship. We are always worshiping something. The question is never, are you worshiping? As though you could just turn that part of yourself off. It is always what? What is it that you are worshiping? And we can see this in the culture around us. Ours is a culture that often describes itself as secular, and in a secular culture, shouldn't worship. But there is a sense, even though that they have tried to empty themselves of religion, of superstition, there still is this fundamental trust, this fundamental orienting of people towards something. If you look a little closer, you'll discover that worship has never disappeared. It simply transfers to a different place. Trust that was placed in God is transferred to trust in progress or technology or humanity and its ability to provide for itself. This trust reflects, reflects a deeper diagnosis here. Our trust points us towards what it is that we worship, what we order our lives around. Classic examples of this include things like power, where our lives get organized around the accumulation of wealth or power, where work, family, religion, all of our things that we do are just different means to obtain this power. When all of life gets filtered through one lens, it's a sign that you have begun to worship that thing. But going beyond some of these more kind of classic ways, we can see more specific places where worship shows up in our culture. I think nothing gives such an easy window into North American worship like a stadium during a sports match. It's often reflected that that looks a little bit too much like worship. 
It's a place that can easily be described as full of worshipers watching a ritual at the center, transfixed by their attempts towards transcendence, to have a play or a move that reaches them closer to a moment of perfection. Now, to acknowledge that isn't necessarily to denounce sport. Um, Christians should, though, I think be a little cautious. I've, I've spent much of my life deeply involved with sports, as the initial kind of image let you know. Um, I've watched, I've played sports, and I think that a reflection on it is that there ought to be a difference between Christian and a non-Christian sports fan. The Christian is one that recognizes that our life does not revolve around the rise or fall of a particular player or team. The Christian sports fan ought to enjoy sports all the more because it is placed in its proper place. They can be engrossed more fully and freely, enjoyment of the excellence of the play, of the suspense, in its proper place. It's not in the place of ultimate meaning, but one of many places where we can delight in God's goodness and God's creation. So whether it is worship towards power or a sports setting or worship around sexuality or our finances or our reputations, when we place our love, our desire, when we start to order our whole lives around things that are not God, we fall short of true worship. True worship is one that is ultimately directed to the one who is truth. And when we don't do that, we thirst. Now, our passage even goes one step further here. It points out that different religious practices even can fall short of true worship. Even worship practices that were commanded in Scripture. This shows up through this mountain that the woman points out that should we worship there? This is Mount Gerizim, um, right in that area in uh, Samaria where they are. This was the mountains that Samaritans worshipped at, and they worshipped there because of a clear command in the Pentateuch from the first five books of the law. Moses commands Israel to do their covenant renewals there, so they are following God's command towards worship. Yet, Samaritans, with their religious practices, are still described as thirsty the Samaritans are coming to their holy mountain day after day. They're, they're like the woman at the well, filling jar after jar. And the best that they can get is a partial fix. They can get enough to, to wet their tongue, maybe enough to fill their stomach for a few hours, but they need to keep coming back. Now let's look at Jesus' words here when he talks to this woman at the well. These words that he gives give us an insight into the nature of true worship. And he does so in relation to thirst and to water. Jesus encounters a woman who is alone and drawing water from well at the sixth hour. Now the sixth hour in an ancient Near Eastern mindset, that is noon. That is the peak of the day. That's the warmest time. Think 40-plus degree weather. This is unusual type of behavior. 
First of all, women would usually go to wells together. They would go in groups. And second, they would go at dawn or at dusk. They would go when it was a little bit more cool. This woman, we can imagine, has been forced to go alone due to stigma against her. There's something about her that forces her into seclusion. We later learn of her broken past. She is a woman who has had five husbands, and her current relationship has led also to a place of seclusion with others. She is one who is living in the midst of hurt, of loneliness, of isolation. She is someone who Jesus sees as thirsty. She is longing for more than what has been dealt with in her life, more than what she has been able to make from her life. She has tried different attempts towards intimacy and has run dry. She is longing for love. She is longing for restored relationship. And Jesus spots that thirst. In this conversation between him and the woman, he offers her something that will fill her spiritual thirst. He says, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus is the one that promises her, this thirsty person, living water. Now, an Israelite reading this, familiar with the the, the prophecies that are in Jewish scriptures, would have recognized something extra here. Listen to these references from Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 12. God is the one who will draw water from the wells of salvation. In chapter 49, Israel again is described as neither hungering or thirsting because God is with them. God is the one who is bringing them water. And more, in Isaiah 43, verse 3, it says this. God speaking to Israel. He says, I will pour water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. God says again, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your offspring. God not only gives water to quench thirst, but he gives him his very self. The people are expecting a time where the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, comes and dwells with them. God promises that they will be a Holy Spirit people. The person familiar with Isaiah is longing for these prophecies to come true. And they see Jesus as understanding that he is fulfilling this. He is the one who is going to bring the outpouring of the Spirit. And maybe she understands a little bit of this. You see, Samaritans shared some scriptures with the Jewish people. They even thought of themselves as the true Israelites. They they kind of figured... They had the right pieces of scripture, and the Jewish people added some apocryphal, just some extra books to it. So they saw themselves as a true Israel, and they shared in having the same forefathers. We have here the reference towards Jacob. They have this shared ancestry with Jacob, the one called Israel. Now, she knows that she has this common ground with Jesus, So that's right where she goes in her answer. 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you more true than Jacob? You think you can provide something our tradition can't provide? We have the foundation of Israel's story here. Mount Gerizim, Jacob's well. We are drawing from a well just as deep, if not deeper, than what you have. And Jesus, in this encounter, doesn't back down, but he amplifies the image. He says, drink from Jacob's well all you want. You're just going to get thirsty again. If you turn to ritual, your traditions, all you will ever get is something that pointed towards me. There are signs pointing towards the real thing. You know that when you drink from Jacob's well, you get a temporary relief from thirst. I am so much more than Jacob that the water that I give, the type is is the type that once you've had it, you will never thirst again. In fact, The water that I provide is so abundant it not only quenches your thirst, but once you have it, water will flow from you. You will become a spring. And by the way, this isn't the only time that Jesus uses this kind of language where he promises um, abundance of water, that he is the source of this. Jesus says nearly the exact same thing in John chapter 7. This time, it's not at the Samaritan holy site, but it is at the temple itself during a festival surrounded by people. Jesus calls out, John makes a point, he calls out in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of water will flow from within them. And then John adds, By this, he meant the Spirit, in case we didn't make that connection. You don't have to kind of figure it out with John. He's just kind of thinking, just remember back to Isaiah 44, verse 3, the Spirit of God is being poured over people like water on dry land. That is coming true in Jesus. The temple, Mount Gerizim, they just give a taste of, of who God is. And Jesus is saying, I am giving the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit will transform your whole being. This is what true worship is about. It's about union with God. Not only does it quench your thirst, but blessings flow from it. True worship taps into our need as worshiping beings. People who take our whole lives full of desires in different ways, and it allows us to understand whatever it is we're dealing with rightly. Finding true worship means that we don't have to turn to the different concoctions to try keep us hydrated. It means that we don't have to turn to money or power or sex, sports, fame, technology, progress, whatever it is that we can turn to for meaning. We don't have to depend on them for temporary fixes, things that when we turn to, we'll just get thirsty again. The true worship that is talked about here takes us into the whole of our lives. It changes our day-to-day living. When we have found the true redemption that Jesus brings, it means that we can live into creation as we were meant to. All of creation turns into this place where we can be giving glory to God. Now, when the woman at the well hears this, her response is 
essentially, sir, give me the Holy Spirit. Sir, give me this water. And notice that Jesus doesn't provide her this water until he shows her that he knows her fully. This is another dimension, another understanding, another way that we can look at what true worship is. True worship is not just, not only worship that is directed towards the true God, the one who is faithful to save us. We get the sense that true worship, it also involves giving your whole self before God. There is no hiding the dark places. True worship is offering all that you are before God. For her, this means her difficult past, her brokenness, her trauma. You can think five marriages. That is a sign that there has been hard parts in her lives. She knows what it means to be hurt. Uh, she is not simply the perpetrator in here. Even in her current relationship, there's likely the source of stigma against her. Even her present is something that is revealed. Jesus knows about it. In fact, he already knew about it when he offered her this living water, this true life, the life of the Spirit. Jesus knows all about people seeking life in the wrong places. He knows all about the fact that we are worshiping beings and that we often get it wrong, leaving us thirsting. He knows that we get caught serving ourselves in our own pride. He knows that we confuse our desires for thirsts and put others before him. And yet, he seeks us out. So often we, we get it the wrong way around and the Bible has to remind us over and over again. It corrects us. It does not get fixed and then go to Jesus. We go to Jesus first. Or more accurately, Jesus seeks us first. Notice in uh, verse 23 in our passage here, God is the one who is seeking these true worshipers. God seeks. The Holy Spirit comes to people in the midst of their brokenness. So let me kind of conclude in reflecting on this, that your brokenness is not going to surprise God. Your brokenness is actually a thirst that helps you respond positively to the invitation that God gives. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. All you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? That's the invitation that comes from Isaiah chapter 55. And Jesus is giving that a new angle. He's saying, your past, even your present situation, does not bar you from this gift. Come and receive this abundant life without cost. And we stand in front of the same offer. We are a people who are called to live spirit-filled, spirit-driven, spirit-overflowing lives. We get this reminder in baptism, where we talk about the water of baptism. We also talk about the signal of our need for this ongoing need for the Spirit, the, the daily renewal that happens 
through the Spirit to renew and cleanse. It is the renewing Spirit's presence that brings us life, not from anything that we do, but Jesus' actions, Jesus' promise. It's a worship that is true worship because it is from the God who can truly renew us. It is true worship because it runs through the whole of our lives. It is not just a Sunday morning thing, but it changes every person we meet, everything that we do, into a place where God is present and active, where God can be worshipped. So to all who are thirsty, the invitation is still the same for us today, to receive the Spirit, the living water, through Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, may we respond like this woman at the well whose thirst gets rightly pointed towards you. Take our disordered wants, the tips and tricks that we try to use to stay hydrated on our own power, and let our thirst be quenched from above. Give us this living water that turns us into springs. Do this for us daily. For those of us who struggle in seeing how that life comes into play, who are lonely, who are navigating more brokenness from this world than they know what to do with, May your spirit's presence bring renewal as they abide in you. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.